I want you to turn to two places in Scripture, Romans chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to start here today because I'm going to talk about faith, and the word is used here twice in these two verses, as well as many, many, many other verses. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question before I continue on. Is there any other way to be justified or right with God? See, it's not a test you take and put the right answers down. It's not a place you go and learn the ways of the routines. It's not some equipping you get from some group somewhere, but it's something you must believe. An announcement has been made by God concerning your salvation and the work of Jesus Christ. For those who believe that, they will be made right or justified by their faith. There's no other way to do that. In Hebrews 10, another verse you're well familiar with, I'm sure you are, Hebrews 10, verses 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The first part of that verse says the just shall live by faith. If you are made right with God by faith, you are now required to live by that faith. Now, my title this morning is this, the faith message, end quote, the faith message, dash, obsolete or absolute. Now, I want to say this too before I go and giving credit to whom credit is due. In a discussion I had earlier in the week with Brother Guthrie, we always talk about our sermons and events and so forth. And he said, I've got a new sermon. I've got a hot title here. And I said, well, what is it? Share it. And he said, is the faith message obsolete or absolute? And I said, now that one's mine also. <laughs> because you have no claim to God and what he's doing any more than I do. I said, no, that is a really good title. I spoke about faith the last couple of weeks. I'd like to use that again. I'd like to speak on that again. And I said, so I'm going to tell them that I got this from you, but that's all I'm going to tell them because I don't know what you're going to say. You don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm sure they'll never compare them. But I want to talk about that because I think that is an end time, last day, current, necessary title that we should understand. Is the message of faith, is it obsolete? Has it run its course? Is it done? Has it been replaced now with something else? Or is it absolute? See, there's three things in that title. One is the faith message, and again, to repeat it for the third week now, because I'm still not convinced that all church members know what the faith message is. I heard a sermon this morning on the radio. I am absolutely convinced and sure that the preacher does not know what is meant by the faith message. I mean, just by the comments he made that he doesn't know what he believes about what God responds to. For example, the statement is made, there are four ways that God responds to prayer. Not the prayer of faith, the word faith was never mentioned, just prayer as an activity. And he said he can say yes, or he can say no, or he can say maybe, or he can say, are you kidding me? And see, now, that was funny to a lot of people, but I didn't think it was funny at all. But that's part of this end-time entertainment 
humanism that is creeping into religion and people's minds are being modified to see God as they see themselves. He's like them. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. But there is no understanding of what faith is. But the faith message essentially is this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Find out what he says, because the only thing that you can depend on him to do is what he says. The faith that God gives comes from hearing this word. This is what he does. This is what he watches over to perform. This is what you can be assured of and convinced of and have confidence in. It's the content of this book. Not because you read it, but because you believe it. And you don't believe it unless it's in your heart and you're at peace with it. You're convinced of it. And when you're convinced of it, then all of life centers around this. If God said it, God will do it. He is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should repent. If he said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good. Now, that's what he said about what he said or about his word. It's just simple. Faith, then, is your willingness, having understood that, to count on God to do what he said. And it's the counting on God depending on God, relying on God, or the trusting in God to do what the Bible says that we call, and what God would call, faith. It literally becomes your attachment with the unseen and not yet done, things that haven't come to pass yet. Faith really does become what makes the future real. You haven't seen it, but I'm expecting it. We call that hope. Faith becomes the substance that which gives reality to what you're believing for. Faith does that. And without this, Hebrews 11:6, the Bible says, without that, you cannot please God. You may be a good church member, very active, very busy your whole life. You have been active for the church and the community. You work the stands at the fairs, and, and you volunteer. You do all of these things, but none of that saves you. There's no salvation in any of that. The busiest people in the world can ever expect to be saved because they're busy. Salvation is entirely this surrender of yourself to God, recognizing your sin and your sinfulness and his offer of forgiveness and receiving that and then living gratefully and lovingly on his behalf the rest of your life. Then because you're saved, you'll do a lot of good things. It's in your heart, compassion, love, care. That's in your heart. Christians ought to do that. But a lot of people do that thinking that if I do this, I'll be saved. Because that's what they'll say at your funeral. Oh, he loved his family and he loved his church and he did this and he did that. But none of that saves you. There's no salvation in anybody's works. You're justified only by faith. Not by works, by faith. But if you are saved, you will do something. That's how you evidence you're saved. It's a simple message, at least it is to me. But the message of faith is simply you willing to take God at his word and count on him to do it. If he says you're healed, you're healed. It's not might be, could be, hope to be, or you kidding me. It is you are healed, period. Not everybody's faith embraces that with their heart. They embrace it with their minds, and they hope it works. But those who embrace that with their heart and become convinced it works, that becomes what they expect. But this is the faith message. It will never, never could be obsolete. 
Because you see, the word obsolete, secondly, has to do with something that changes, something that is no longer relevant, something that is out of date, like styles. You know how you feel when somebody comes in with last generation's dress or clothes, or what's wrong with them? Because that's obsolete. Nobody wears that anymore. Somebody saw a picture when I was in college or high school, I guess it was college and a basketball team, and our shorts were the kind of shorts that men wear, the normal kind of shorts. And then some of this younger generation that have never seen nothing but dresses on men down to their knees, the dumb-looking shorts they wear today, dumbest-looking shorts ever designed. They laugh at my shorts, you know, that we wore in college. Well, we knew more about it than you all did. I'm just saying that times change. And as time changes, things are left behind. And those things are often referred to as obsolete or extinct or outmoded or outworn. And, you know, it's just for another age. But this, the church says, and a lot of people said, this is the new age we're in now. This is the year 2000. Those old-fashioned ways are no longer what we do. And so they call those things outmoded, outdated, obsolete. Let me ask you a question. Is God obsolete? Now, I know you know that. I mean, I know the right answer. You know the right answer. And I can't imagine anybody that goes to any kind of church ever agreeing to the fact that God is obsolete or what he says is obsolete. But I know a lot of people act that way because a lot of people act like the word is irrelevant, no longer has any bearing on the situation or the times or whatever is going on. It no longer is applicable. That's not what we do anymore. They did that then to now we go to the doctor. Now we go to the whatever we go to. Now we used to do it that way back when it wasn't very refined and nobody had anything better, but now we got it a lot better. So we don't do that anymore. We do this. Let me ask you, has the word ever changed? When the Bible says, I am the Lord, I change not, in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I change not, has that ever changed? Listen to me this morning. One thing that I'm convinced of before I got here this morning is that we need to understand this message more than any other message that I can currently think of. You've got to get yourself settled and convinced that the only source for you to ever do right is God. And the reason you can count on him is because he is unchangeable and eternal. And he will never be anything less than what he is. Because he is God. He is who he is. His word doesn't change with the age or the time. The year 2000, the word of God is the same application today as it had 2,000 years ago. Time has never changed what God has said. Time changes people. Time changes cultures. Time changes the modes of operation. But time has never affected or changed God because God is timeless. God doesn't dwell in what we call time. We do. There is no clock ticking in heaven that God says, well, what time? He's timeless. We live in time. And when he spoke, he'll never change it. God is not a man that he should lie. If he said it, he'll do it. 
And if he said he will do it, he does it for whoever reads this. At any age they read it. Because he is God. He does not change. Does his word ever change or vary? I mean, when the Bible says about God with him, God and James, there is no variableness or turning. Does that mean that he never changes his way or his mind? It does. He never changes. We're approaching God this morning as someone who can be absolute as God, who can be totally and completely counted on to do what he said because he's not affected by current situations, times, politics, anything else in this world. Nothing has affected God. He's still in charge. And he still, he still, as Jeremiah 1 said, he still watches over his word to do it. He still, as in Isaiah 55 said, what he sent his word to do, he said he will cause that to happen. Time cannot change that. Events cannot change that. Cultures cannot change that. Nothing that man devises can change that. Nothing can. Follow me for just a moment. It's Psalms 119 and verse 89. And let me tell you some things. Of the many things I could quote, here are three things that the Bible says about the word of God, which you're holding in your lap and using this morning to follow the message. In Isaiah 40, verse 80, it says, The grass withers, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now think of that. That book you're holding is eternal. That's a divine, unchanging, eternal word. The word of our God shall stand forever. You put things together. I am the Lord, I change not. And the Lord and his word are one. And as he changes not, his word changes not. You can believe it today just like you could believe it as they believed it in the first century. In the verse you're looking at, verse 89, Psalm 119, and verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled where? In heaven. I would say that heaven is, is somewhat eternal. Wouldn't you? Very much. It is eternal. And God's word in heaven is settled. Everything will come to pass according to it. God who spoke it eons ago is still watching over it and is still going to bring it to pass when he spoke it in the days of the prophets walking in deserts. What he said then will come to pass in your lifetime sitting here. It's already starting to happen. Biggest thing that's ever happened is the nation of Israel not only being reborn, but claiming their land back. In your generation, that's the last day. That's when our clock starts ticking about the end. But God said his word is forever settled in heaven. Jesus said in, in his sermon about the end time in Matthew 24, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. He said, but my words shall not pass away. At no time do they ever change. At no time do they ever mean less than what he gave them to mean. They are changeless. They are eternal. And you can count on them at any hour, any place, any time. They're as much today for us as they were for the first century church. They have as much authority and power today as they did then. Or as they did then for today. Nothing has ever changed with God. Man has changed. 
we are given to change. We go up, we go down. We drift in, we drift out. We're high today and low tomorrow, but God is never, he's always the same. Does his word change? John 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the way it was in the beginning. Before there was anything, before there was, I'm over my head. Before there was nothing, there was God. God was before nothing. And everything that came to be, came to be because God spoke a word. He said something. And what he said became what he said. When he said universe, that happened. And it's pretty complicated. You can go up there to that creation museum in Cincinnati, and you're over your head. They're over their head. Universe. And there it was. And man has been scratching his miserable little pea brain size head for eons trying to figure it out. The universe is so big that they try to show as much of it as they know how. Our sun is so little it can't even be seen. It's just a little tiny thing, the sun, that our little bitty, itsy bitsy little earth goes around like this. See, I'm going in a circle here. That's the earth going around the sun in Shelby County, the universe, or the state of Kentucky. And in the state of Kentucky, here's a little sun, and here's a little bitty earth, 92 million miles away from it. And there you are. <laughs> I don't know how little you are on that little bitty thing going around, but you're a little bitty, little bitty tiny thing. And Jesus came for you because he said in his word that he would do that. That word will never change. We don't educate ourselves or become so intellectual that the word adjusts itself to our understanding. It has never been like that. It's the opposite of that. We must adjust whatever we're going through, whatever we believe or learn or whatever intellect we have. We have to adjust that so that we agree with God and give up everything that's between us. And modern man can't do that because thinking himself to be wise, he becomes a fool. But in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the origin of it. And the Bible says the Word was God. And in John 1, 14, it says, and the Word became flesh. So that Jesus becomes the Logos. Probably in its best definition, Logos means revelation. To me, it would be. Jesus is a living revelation of the invisible God as Hebrews speaks of him in chapter 1. Jesus is the living representation of the living God. He is the word of God who came down from heaven. As a word, he gives light and he gives life. And now this word can never change because this word is God. God said, I am the Lord and I change not. Nothing affects him. Seasons or nothing affects him. The word doesn't say one thing in one age and then mean something in another age differently. Now listen to this. Because Jesus is a living word, Hebrews 13, 8 said he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
what he was, he is. He never changes. He doesn't modify himself for some age, so he comes across differently than he did when he started. He's always the same. The intellectual, overeducated mind cannot stand the fact that a timeless Christ is the only way to heaven. An ancient revelation of God is still the only way in this modern time to know and get to heaven. They just can't handle that. We're smarter now than any generation ever has been. Yeah, and there's more lost today than they've ever been. There's as many people alive on the earth right now as have died since Adam. You think of that. Six billion maybe plus right now, six billion plus have probably died since the beginning of time. And this Bible has been butchered and fought and burned Destroyed people have given their lives to print it, and it cost them their lives when they owned it or had it. And God has preserved this word in his purity for all these centuries, and man at his best hour could never destroy it. God is in control because he is God. His word dominates. Things shall come to pass. In the events in Jesus' life said, this happened so that it might come to pass as Scripture says. Because it'll all end the way God said it. Now, the word, therefore, is a timeless, unchanging word. We are all fools if we look for some other way besides what's in that book. Because there's only one thing in life that God will honor and watch over and do, and that's what's in that book. And for those who say that things like healing has changed, and that's not for today... 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God are in Christ, the timeless Jesus Christ. All the promises are in him who cannot change. Yes, and in him, amen. If they were yes in the beginning, they're yes today. If they worked then, they work today. There is nothing else that's taken its place. And a whole generation of the end is beginning to leave the veracity and the truth of this word and begin to follow after the modern versions of man. Well, we know God could, but now, you know, today we have something else to replace that. That is a lie. That is a seducing spirit and the doctrine of the devil in a church out of the mouth of someone who should know better, but he himself the Bible said evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived in the last days. This is an hour in which the very things that threaten the church are happening, departing from the faith. It's no longer relevant. You don't need it anymore. God has given us something else besides that. We don't have to turn to God and count on God because God has given us other things to count on. Hey, we couldn't all be wrong. And consequently, the mindset of a whole last day generation, with few exceptions, is being turned away from God and being turned back to man. We call that humanism, and I'll get to that in a minute. But it's happening in mass from the greatest, biggest churches, and in some cases to the little ones. But it's happening. Now we come to the absolute. Is the faith message, trusting in God, is it absolute? 
See, that which is obsolete means it changes. That which is absolute is unchanging. It cannot change. Because if it can change, it's not absolute. If something is absolutely true, it cannot be anything but that at any time, any place, anywhere. It is absolutely true. No exceptions. Absolutely no exceptions because it doesn't change. Now, people who want it to be different than that call what I'm preaching hyperfaith. Hyperfaith means excessive or beyond. You're going too far with this message. You're going too far with telling people that God will and can heal. You're going too far with this thing about when you pray, believe. Believe what? Believe you have it. The man this morning just said, essentially, he was saying, pray, it might work. But you can't just expect to be healed every time you pray. Otherwise, nobody would ever die. And I thought, what a really ignorant statement that is. We're not praying that we'll live forever. We're praying that we'll be healed. Because Jesus purchased healing for us at the cross. Why should we shun him? Because we're afraid to trust him. But people who don't trust him are preaching that you don't have to. So there's a relief for a lot of people. They don't have to trust God. You just come and hear sermons, and the sermon doesn't mean anything because there's no pop to it. There's no power in it. It's not for sure. It is not a certain and absolute word because somebody said it wasn't. And boy, we got this end time turning away from God. Speaking of that, is there only one way? Amen. No, wait a minute. Now, this is not politically correct. But as we would say with the capital P, fui on what is politically correct when it comes to truth. Is Christianity, faith in God, following Jesus, is that the only way a man can ever be saved? Then we can say any other so-called religion that doesn't say that, they're all wrong. All of them are wrong. Every version all of them are wrong. There is only one way. It's not goodness. It's not trying real hard. There's only one way. That's Jesus Christ. But not just a name, but a life you live in honor of him. Jesus. Nothing else is right. I can say that. That's absolutely the truth. That is absolutely the truth. He said, there's only one name under heaven whereby a man can be saved. Acts 12, 4, there's only one name under heaven whereby a man can be saved. That's the name Jesus Christ. He's a living word. He changes not. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Any generation, whoever comes to him can be saved. He never changes. This is an absolute truth, absolutely unchanging God in an absolute way. How about Judgment. Is everybody going to face some sort of judgment in their life, whether it's a believer's judgment or the great white throne of judgment? The Bible says we all must stand before God. You can't get away from that. You cannot change that with the time or the ages. One thing for sure and for certain about all of us is that all people die. We're not made to live in this physical body forever. It has to be changed, and it will be changed because you will live forever in another dimension, another state, in heaven with God or in hell, and you don't want to go there. 
But all you have to do to miss God is just take for granted what God said or what somebody else said. Don't make any application of it to your life and just go to church and hope that works. And you'll miss it. This Christian life isn't easy. The Bible says with difficulty a man enters into heaven. That's what Peter wrote. It is hard for the righteous to make it. It's a life that when you realize all of this, there is fear and trembling that goes with this. The word that we're hearing, he said, you have to receive with meekness. You've got to humble yourself to it and give up whatever's between you and God. You can't argue with God or debate with him about well, how it's wrong. You just give it up. And you let his word become supreme and you feel so foolish and so undone. But that's where God brings you before he builds you up. He gets rid of you so he can replace you with him. But it's all about the word, and it is absolute. Taking the message of faith, is there any other way to please God? Is there any other way to please God? The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's the only way you can do it. Matthew 9, Matthew 8, and other places, when Jesus said, be it unto you according to your faith, is that still true today? Is that an absolute truth? Is it going to be all of us, are we all going to stand before God facing the consequences of the use of our faith or the neglect of it? Every one of us. We can have faith in God or we can back off. But the point of it is our faith, our attitude towards God that compels us to trust him or our attitude towards God, though it meant to be well, but we just stood afar off. We're all going to answer for that because God requires faith in us to live. He said, be it unto you according to your faith. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? Because of your faith. Why did Jesus keep talking about faith so much in the Bible? Why would he say things and have them printed in this book, this eternal book, if he's going to change his mind about it? Oh, we know he said that, but now, there is no but now. There is no but now in Scripture. If he said it, he said it. It's not but now. It's what he said. That's absolute. Try anything else you want to. Try to be good. and Do anything you want to, but the only thing that's right is what's in this book. And he makes it clear, as clear as I know how to say it, he makes it clear to us what he wants. While you're going through difficult times, while you're on the peaks, while you're in the valley, he makes his word clear to you. So that you can't walk out of the building here in the dark or in a haze unless you're lost. Because a natural man can't receive spiritual things. But you're going to be challenged. You're going to have a chance to think about it because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to every man everywhere. And when God says, be it unto all of you here according to your faith, has that ever changed and will it ever change? No, it's absolute. It is an absolute truth. It cannot change. It will never go away. It will be unto us according to our faith. That's where it's going to be. What about our cleansing? Do we need to be cleansed? Does everybody that Christ brings to him, do they need to be cleansed of 
things. I know you got a new life in you. You know Christ dwells in your heart by faith. But how about does your mind need to be renewed? How about your old habits? Does that have to go? Well, how do you go? Are you still in Psalms? Well, look at Psalm 119 again. Psalms 119 and verse 9, right at the front. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking a course in one of the departments of the church on discipleship. Well, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that if it was taught right. But that isn't what he said. Wherewithal shall a young man... How many of you are young men or under 30? The Bible says this to you in particular. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? One way. Is it absolute way? Is there any other way? So if you're going to get cleansed, if your life is going to change, there's only one way it's going to work. That's by taking heed unto the word of God. Well, have young men ceased from the earth? Have nasty young men ceased from the earth? Have dirty young men ceased from the earth? Do young men who need to be cleansed, have they ceased to be? Well, then this word's still applicable, isn't it? Because we still have young men on the earth. There's only one way for us to be cleansed, and that's according to this word. What about the rest of us concerning our ultimate goal, which is full stature, maturity? Is there only one absolute unchanging way for us to reach that final destination in life, what we call maturity, completeness, full stature, or perfect? How do we get there? Turn to James 1. Let me make another point out of this. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. But brethren, he says, count it all joy when you fall into divers or different kinds or various kinds of trials. It's obvious that there is no such thing as having a trial without faith. People of our persuasion, you know, we talk about everything being a trial. Well, my dog is having a trial. Your dog isn't having a trial. Dogs don't have faith in God. Dogs don't sin. Dogs aren't the objects of redemption. We are. We're made in the image of God, not dogs or apes. I am not from an ape. (laughs) You know how I know that. Because if Jesus Christ is the express image, the visible representation of the invisible God, as God said, they will be made in the likeness, the outside, and on the inside. The image and likeness of God. If I'm made to look like God, I look like Jesus. And Jesus looked like us. So all them other things, apes and stuff, that's just for the weird and the intellectuals to wrestle with. But a trial is when what you say you have, what you believe, is put to the test. You believe that God will do this, rescue you, supply your needs, heal you, whatever. Well, anybody can say that. But it's when you release your faith... Because he said in verse 3, the testing of your faith. It's when your faith is tested that you're going to find out if you really believe this or not, or you're just aping and imitating or echoing what everybody else in the church has learned, and you think if you do what they do, you're all right. People do it all the time. They make good confessions. I want to make this good confession. Confessions don't do it. 
It's faith that does it. You do not try to talk yourself into faith. That's mental gymnastics. You talk because you believe, not you're trying to believe. You don't make something true by believing it. It is either true before you start or it's not true. Just like the word of God. You don't make it true because you believe it. It's true before you believe it or whether you believe it or not. In James chapter one, this is where God starts. Believe me. I'm going to give a revelation, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then more and more. But I'm going to give a revelation of myself to you all. And then I'm going to put you to the test to see if you really mean it. I love you, Lord, and I lift my, he's all I need. Okay, I'm going to find out if you really believe that. We're going to put you to the test. Oh, I love your word. We'll find out. I'll keep repeating it and see if you can get tired of it. Maybe it'll be the same old, same old. Every week, same old thing. Well, then you're getting weary of it, aren't you? It's no longer having that relevance. It no longer has that need and that pop. There's something wrong with us, not God. We start with faith. I'm taking yet your word. All right, let's see if you are. What's verse 3? Testing of your faith worketh what? Endurance is stick to itness, steadfastness, and unwillingness to surrender your faith because of the circumstances. I'm going and I'm holding on. Because my heart has embraced the word, God cannot fail, I will refuse to give up. And you endure. In fact, you must endure to the, um, is that still in the Bible? Endure to the end? But let endurance have its work because endurance, while you're undergoing all of this, God is doing a work in your life. There comes a time you cross the line where there's no hope now. It better be God. And people are willing to do that. But let endurance have its, what kind of work? Perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's no more work to be done. You have reached your intended goal that God set before you. This is what I want. This is the kind of man that I want you to be. Look at here. He says, here's Jesus. Jesus is the pattern son. We are shown a picture in the Bible of who Jesus is and how he lived and what he did. And God said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased with. This is the kind of man I want you all to be. I want you to be like him. And so we begin this journey of imitating imitators of Christ. We begin to follow after him and so we have trouble. We agonize. Oh God. But then there's this, I've got to do this. I want to do this. We continue on in the fear of God. There is no other way. And if you turn back, you let go of the plow. What do you have? Nothing, nothing. You got a sympathetic crowd behind you. Oh, come on. We did the same thing. You're all right. And they'll destroy you. But when the fear of God gets a hold of you, you have no other choices. There are no options. There's no other way. There is no other way that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is no other way. This is an absolute truth. If you don't go this way, how will you make it? And it's simple. Believe what he said. Don't let go of what he said. Hold fast to what he said. 
You have need of endurance. In Hebrews 10, he said, you have need of patience so that after you've done the will of God, you might receive what was promised. Oh, God, Lord, help me to hold fast. Lord, it doesn't look like this healing is going to work. It looks like this thing has got a hold of me. But you said in your word, you said in your word, that if I will resist the devil who brought this thing, if I will resist him, he will flee from me. And the package he brought into my life has to go. Now, I'm not going to let go of that. And God does this deep work. And it's during this time that a lot of people begin to have personal revelations about life. It's not the weak and the weary that have the wonderful movings of God. It's those people who are agonizing sometimes in those dark hours of their life, unwilling to let go, and God speaks to them. Dramatic ways in which the heart is touched. And you get up off of your knees or walk out of that room sometime, you're so determined to walk this way, you start giving up things in your life you don't even realize so much of what you're doing except that I just want to please God because I know who he is and I want to serve him. Is there any other way? I'm asking you, is there an option here? Is there something we can substitute for this kind of life? Do we have to fear God? If you don't fear him, you'll quit. Somebody will talk you out of it. That's what seducers do. That's what end-time imposters do. That's what error is. It's to lead astray, to make you veer off course. It's happening everywhere in this world as I'm speaking. We have to latch on to something whether anybody else does or not. I cannot let go of this because sometimes even my family depends on what I do. You serve the Lord, you follow the Lord. He said, I'll bless you and your children. I said, well, they don't deserve it. I didn't either. But the work he begins doing in us, he'll do in them too. We cannot live a complacent life and call it Christianity. You cannot sit back and just think, well, you can't do that. Because when God said this is the way walk in it, walk is an absolute word. It doesn't say this is the way sit around and think about it. He didn't say this is the way vote on it. He said this is the way walk. Don't we sing a song that has one of the refrains, walk in all the ways? In Jeremiah 7, don't we sing that? Walk in all the ways that I have suggested to you that it might be well with your soul. He said commanded you. Why should at this hour in our life in a church like that, why should we start be getting weary or acting weary? Why should we be doing that? Why should things like that happen? It's not an hour to do that. You're living at the time of haters of God, blasphemers in the movies and radio and TV and magazines and, and this vulgar, vulgar music. The music is so vulgar that if they ever see a film clip of it on the news, they have to bleep out half the words. And your kids are paying 15, 20 bucks a throw for that little disc to infiltrate their mind to make them vulgar. 
And if you all have those discs, they're making you vulgar. We found a CD here once. And I thought, what is that? I had somebody written on it, you know, whatever the title was. And I put it in my car. We didn't get down past the seals place over here until Bonnie said, get that out, get that out. I mean, the first out of the box was two or three nasty, ultra nasty words. It was sung by nasty people producing nasty results because the whole thing is nasty. That's the best way I don't know how to say it, nasty. It's the very opposite, two different poles, east to west, just the opposite. And the kids who listen to that go to church. They go to church, they sit here, your children. They got that junk in their car. Your child has a radio, go out and, I did once, turn on the radio. Hit all the buttons and see what's on there. And then they go to church and you wonder, they don't seem to do well. How could they do well? It's the last days. That nasty stuff is in their mind. And they're acting themselves nasty. You don't even want to know what they're doing when they're by themselves. You don't even want to know what they're text messaging other kids. You don't want to know. Say, well, mine wouldn't. Okay, then I'm talking about the other ones here. It's the last day. I personally cannot just stand by knowing these things are happening and keep my mouth shut. I hate it. I despise it. I loathe it. Because I see what it does to people. And I see parents who aren't keeping up with these things and aren't paying attention to what their kids are doing, who they're running around with, where they're going, how they're dressing. Oh, God, how can you sit in church as long as they have and let this come out of your house? Comes out of your house, not a witness to Christ, but a witness to the devil. You see, we live in a day which I'll call relativism. What's relevant for today? What is relevant? Relativism is a view or an attitude that ethical truths depend on individuals and groups holding them. It's the popular idea. It's what works today. It's what the masses seem to think and hold to as the current truth. What's relative? And if something is irrelative, and it doesn't matter because there's no application of it, like faith to a lot of people. Or like a guy named uh, Roger that I knew back in Charlestown many years ago. He left this message. He saw somebody uh, a few months later who was still in the church. He said, you still listen to that faith message? Now, what he didn't know that I could say to you, there is no other message. There is no other. Let me give you something absolute. There is no other message. Everything else that we preach comes from this. Because he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those whose belief is seen in seeking. Otherwise, they have nothing. They have religion. They have a version of God. There are countless challenges to what you all believe. I heard something on the radio this morning. It's a challenge to my faith. If I sat in that church, I would die like they're dying. I know how that sounds, but I'm telling you the truth. 
I would be dying like they're dying. And they don't know they're dying. The universities are cranking out new ideas, the relevance of whatever's going on today and as opposed to the old biblical standards or, you know, they're just outmoded and outdated, consequently obsolete. And new ideas are invading the minds of kids that already are listening to nasty music, wearing nasty clothes and acting nasty because they want to be free and they want to be cool and go to concerts and act like this all the time. And so when some heady somebody begins to espouse some wicked idea, must be right because he's cool. I had a daughter tell me one time about college. She said, I have the most heathen professor, heathenistic, heathen, they call them in the mountains. I have a professor that is a full-flown heathen. He said the first day of class, he said, now I do not believe the Bible. And I'm willing to challenge anybody in here about, you know, the untruths of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. So if you ever want to, you know, you call me, but I do not believe it. And I'm thinking, as she's telling me this, I wonder if you ever read it. Because people who say, I don't believe the Bible, you ever read it? Have you ever studied the Hebrew or the Greek? Well, I don't know what that means. Well, then you don't know if you believe it or not then. How ignorant is it to say, I don't believe the Bible when you've never read it? It'd be like saying, well, I don't believe that book, War and Peace, which I read last night. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> the book about that thing, but it's like saying, you know, I don't believe that War and Peace was written with a good attitude. How do you know what it was written with? Do you know the author? No. Well, how would you know anything like that? It's like me saying, somebody said, well, what do you think about the latest Mazda full one-ton truck? There is no such thing, is there? Okay. And I say... I wouldn't have one. No, I, they're no good. No, they, those things aren't made very good. You ever have one? No. You ever drive one? No. Well, you don't even know what you're talking about. Now, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh because he shall have this whole end time mindless age in derision. God is allowing all this trash to go on while you are sitting here and while all these wonderful things that he's saying to you is going on. He's allowing all this stuff to confront you along with what I'm saying because it's going to give you a chance, just like in Deuteronomy 13, to show whether or not you love the Lord or you love this stuff out here. Give me a chance. Who will you put first in your life? What will determine your choices? Will it be an absolute faith in God or will it be some option that some heady preacher on the Sunday morning big hour told you about? This is a wicked age that we're in. Intellectuals, psychology, people are being psyched and don't even know it. They're giving things to think about like, well, now, you know, we all know the Bible uses the word sin a lot, but let's really, and back in those days, sin, and they give some kind of an explanation of sin was just guilt. Everybody has guilt. Nobody's perfect. They didn't know any way to get rid of their guilt. So here came the prophets, you better repent, repent. So they just, well, I, I, I'm sorry. That's all you can do, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry, Lord, we're okay. All the sting is gone out of sin. 
you know, the Catholics. My dad was Catholic. He lived wherever he wanted to, and he'd go to confession every week and confess to that guy on the other side of the booth there all of his faults and sins, and he's forgiven. He's clean. He walks out of there to keep doing what he did and come back next time, go through it all again. I mean, it's no big deal. Cussing and drinking and carousing and, and all those other things. It's no big deal. You know, getting together guys and drinking a beer or two and watching a movie you shouldn't watch and, and kind of checking out the girl. It's no big deal. Hey, everybody. I mean, we're not perfect. Folks, this is what we call humanism. This is what we call humanism. This is the kind of stuff that's a, a doctrine or a way of life or an attitude that's centered on human interest and human values. Humanism makes you God. Your destiny is in your hands. You can make out of your life whatever you want your life to be because you are the master of your destiny. And we cannot just limit ourselves to outmoded biblical truths, so-called, because, in fact, what was true in ancient Israel is not necessarily true in modern America. Look at how much divorce has taken place today. Who cares? It's no big deal anymore. But there was a time in my lifetime, in the 40s and 50s, that it was just about unheard of. It was a social tragedy. Today, movie stars live together, adopt a bunch of kids, not even married. They sleep together, live together, run around and do ugly things, vulgar and nasty, and then make a record of gospel songs. Never a day when wickedness is exposed as much as it is right now. And here we are in that age looking at all of this, all the glamour of it, just like what the devil promised Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have that? Would you like to be looked at like that and lusted after like that? Wouldn't you like to have that and drive that and be there and, and be admired? Would you love that? And this old-fashioned Bible comes along and says, everything you just said will kill you. Because every bit of that, every single bit of it's the devil. All that is in the world the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the devil. And if you want to please him, you've got to surrender all of that. That is an absolute fact. You've got to give it up. You've got to surrender it. But humanism says, oh, no. Oh, no. Humanism in the church, like I started this message. The preacher is preaching, but it's an entertaining church. This has entertainment value. People come because they like the messages. You know, they don't bore you all morning because they're only a half hour long. And they're entertaining and they're funny and there's always a lot of funny quips and jokes in there. Talking about, you know, prayer. We should pray and all the right things about the need for prayer. But then it rules out the reason for praying by saying, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Well, if God sometimes said no, why would I ever pray? Why would I ever pray if before I'm praying, God said, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. I might cry hard if he says, well, maybe. But God ain't like that. 
Man has made God like that because what men have done in a humanistic environment is bring God down to the level of men. And they've humanized God so that you begin to see God like you see yourself and each other. That's why you think, you fabricate it in your mind, or you have this conception religion where you, well, I mean, surely God understands. Don't you think he understands? Well, yeah, he understands. I mean, we're not perfect. Come on. I mean, we don't have but just a brief time in this world to live in. And after all, don't you think God wants you to have fun? I mean, you can't just, I mean, come on, man. It's, God is with us for us. Come on. You start thinking like that. And you rule out a need for holiness in your life because you can dismiss all your need for a pure life by saying, come on, God understands, and you back away. That's why kids get involved with each other a lot because God isn't holy to them. All this hugging and kissing and caring, which leads to sex and then the problems that last forever because they don't listen. Because somebody said, well, you know, everybody else's. I mean, what's, you know, the father who allows his son to bring his girlfriend home and stay there and the broom in there, because, well, at least I know where he is. Sounds like it's pretty reasonable, like a level-headed man. Listen to Woodhand Stubble on a talk show. Woodhand Stubble is a radio station I've heard of. And listen to them in the talk show when people give their advice or their opinions. You'll find that almost nobody has an absolute view of God. And when they do, everybody goes, well, yeah, well you know, I'm not going to debate religion with you. You know, you people. Blah, blah, blah. The only thing that's tolerable is this wishy-washy humanistic view. And when it creeps into the church, God is fun. You don't have to live a holy life. You don't have to take care of yourself. You live together with somebody. I mean, come on, that's not the end of the world. You're just trying to be reasonable here. And you drink a little booze. I mean, come on, after all. And they keep talking like that because they're watering down everything, taking away all the absolutes out of it, and they're humanizing God. It's like Psalm chapter 15, verse 12. He said, you thought I was all together like as you are. Or in Ecclesiastes 8, he said, you know, because the sentence against sin is not immediately brought out, people get worse. Well, look, we did that last night. We did that right now, and I haven't been sick. My money's coming in. My job is going good, and I'm living like a dog. I'm running the bars and going to church, singing in the choir. I haven't fallen down. So they think that it's okay. And the preacher can tell jokes about God. Can you imagine God's response to prayer is one of four things? Yes, no, maybe, or you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I think you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm laying in the bed. I'm thinking, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue in this world what you're talking about. You're teaching people to pray because it's a proper thing to do, but there has no fabric of reality to it because it may work, it might not work, and just do your best. I wouldn't go to a prayer meeting if that's the way I believed. I wouldn't want to waste my time or God's if he had time to waste. If I cannot believe before I go that God will do what I'm asking him to do, I don't know what I could ask for. I think the problem in closing is this. Turn to Proverbs 29. I think this is our problem. You see, when humanism creeps into your life, unknowingly, it's a seducing spirit. It's subtle. But when humanism comes into your life, you'll start missing church. You will. Don't you have your reasons? 
Aren't they as good as anybody else's? Don't you have a right to your reasons? Does it ever occur to you that maybe God has something to say about the assembling of yourself together? Well, I just don't like, well, but maybe you ought to pray before you get here that you'll receive something from the Lord instead of dragging yourself in here thinking, well, Wednesday night. Maybe you're the problem with the whole thing. God doesn't have to bow down to, oh, you're not, feel, well, here, let me do something for you, make you feel. That ain't what he said. It's a privilege to come here. It is a need to be here. To take advantage of another opportunity to hear something. I didn't hear it the first time, but I might hear it the second time. Luther can attest to that. He read the Bible for years, and one day a verse jumped out and brought the Reformation. The just shall live by faith. But in Proverbs chapter 29, where there is no vision, is that a problem, our problem, or your problem? Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Note two words, perisheth and keepeth. Would you say this? If a man keeps the law, God will cause him to be happy and he will not perish. But if I have no vision, if something is not driving me from heaven and I have no vision, then I will perish. But if I keep the law that he's showing me, I will not perish. I'll be happy. Well, then maybe the problem is vision, where there is no vision. Vision is sometimes translated revelation. Where there is no living revelation, no word that comes from God, where there is no light from heaven shining into your life, something that is unique and personal, where there is no living revelation of God. Now, the word perish means cast off restraint. Listen, people quit trying. The revelation they get is from a man. It's a human thing. That's why Paul said, search the scriptures, see if what I'm saying is true. Don't believe it because I said, search it for yourself. Judge yourself. Judge yourself. See if you're in the faith. Because if you're not, you're reprobate. Hebrews 13, 8. So he said, where there is no word from God personally coming into your life to guide you, to correct you, and to get you focused, you will cast off restraint. You will quit trying. You'll start giving in to stuff. You'll start giving into that and backing off here, backing off there. And then without exception, I believe you'll become weary of hearing. And you get bored with something that was once your life. One thing we used to talk about, and oh man, then one day would you realize you got bored with it? Because something has happened. Where there is no living revelation of God, no fresh word from God shining into your heart, you will just fold your arms and get bored and really not remember much of anything you've been hearing because something is wrong. What has replaced that other thing? What has changed us and what's caused us to turn? 
In the last days, it's be like this. I think Amos 8 says this. It says, in the last days, it shall come to pass that I will send a famine in the land, not of bread and water, but of hearing the words of God. That's Amos 8, 11. Of hearing the words of God. And in verse 2, it says, and they shall wander from sea to sea to try to find this living revelation. And the light has gone out and they can't find it. They hear what man says and they're realizing in the age they're in, this ain't working. We have been fools. We've been captured and slain by this humanistic word. Oh God, and they can't find it. That's the famine in the last day. That people are not seeking the word so God removes it. And the people who seek it are beginning to be happy. Oh, it's getting bad out there. Well, Jesus is coming. It'll get better for us. Amen, and thank you, Lord. One translation says, the New King James Version said, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Let me close by saying this, and I believe this is an absolute truth. Where divine revelation and the faithful preaching of the sacred testimonies in this book are unattended or they're not reverenced, the ruin of the people is certain. I think it says that. When divine revelation and the faithful proclaiming of these sacred testimonies is not reverenced and is unattended, the ruin of that person or those people is certain. God help us to have a heart. All these years we've been doing this, all these years, give us a heart to finish this course. In Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the light in your word, for the power of it, the might of it, and the meaning of it that we so desperately desire. That you would guide us by your spirit into truth, And let us treat it as absolute truth. We have no other options. No other way, Lord. Help us to have that kind of mindset and be Christians. And it's Jesus himself who taught us to pray. Lord, I pray today that you will deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let us search and try our ways, turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts with our hands, with our hearts, with our hands unto God.